Welcome back, everybody. My name is Eric Johnson, and I'm one half of the duo of the Johnson Brothers with my brother Derek here today for our next podcast called Running Into the Fog today with August Jackson, our good friend from uh, way back in the day and all the way up until the present and podcast pioneer uh, himself. So, August, great to have you here with us. Hey, it's great to be here, Eric, and great to be here, Derek, as well. All right. Well, we're going to talk about all kinds of stuff today, and uh, hopefully we can cover about 45 minutes worth of uh, extemporaneous conversation. These are not scripted, as you're about to find out. Uh, And this is officially episode three. Uh, So August, uh, in a few years, when people are actually watching these things, and hopefully uh, we'll have watched this one uh, more immediately than that, uh, we can look back on what we talk about here, and maybe we'll make a bunch of predictions or something and and see how wrong we were. Yep, third time is a charm. (laughs) That's right. I guess you're you're a longtime podcaster yourself. What what lessons have you learned about podcasting over the years that maybe two uh, greenhorns from Wisconsin ought to know? Maybe we should start there. Um, well, I don't know if I have any lessons to offer, um, but you know, I, I've when when podcasting was new, like circa two thousand four, two thousand five, um, I became a listener almost immediately and was really taken in by the. Um, you know, like the pirate radio aspect of it. If you think about like Adam Curry and some of the other early podcasters, there was just something really like punk rock about it. And I absolutely loved it. And it didn't take long before I started to think, well, you know, this is something that's, you know, the production level is inexpensive enough and the distribution is is basically free on the internet that you could build a lot of really niche audiences around a podcast. And so I thought, well, you know, there's probably enough of an audience around competitive intelligence as well. Um, so maybe the one lesson I can impart is um, that if you have a niche and it can be a relatively small niche, um, you know, that this is a media option that is available to, you know, experts and enthusiasts and anybody who, who has that, you know, that kind of small audience that they want to reach out to. The second thing I'd probably offer is you learn at least as much as you put out into the world as well, because, you know, I got to have great people on my podcast like Eric back in the day and had reasons to reach out to leading competitive intelligence professionals like Jan Herring, Ben Galad, and the list goes on and on and on. You know, I was young enough at the time. I had no business reaching out to those guys other than I had a podcast and I wanted to interview them and it was a great opportunity to do it. Awesome. Yeah, our our time with you, August, goes back uh, what a decade and a half plus, or sounds about right. We met within the uh, community of strategic and competitive intelligence professionals, and we may have a few fun stories uh, about some of those interactions (laughs) come out in the next uh, forty or so minutes. Yeah, Uh, so I think I'm sorry to interrupt, but I I think we've all three of us have been to every skip. I've been to every skip conference since 2005. you know, this year was virtual, of course, because everything was virtual this year. But, you know, that's a, that's a lot of times to get together. That's a lot of, you know, happy hours at the hotel bar. And let's not even get started on that um, SLA conference in Philly that one time. Um, <laughs> I, I think you guys had to, like, carry me home in a wheelbarrow or something like that. You know what we say? No man or woman left behind. behind that's right. <laughs> Thank you for that. Well, Derek actually has a funny story night. about his very first Skip conference. Derek, tell us about your first Skip conference. Oh, gosh. In the company. I, yeah, I've... so so imagine, August, it's March 1st of 2003, almost 18 years ago to the day. 
Um, I joined Aurora. I didn't know. I, I say I didn't know jack or shit about competitive intelligence. And I think that's mostly true. And Eric on that first day says, I think we're going to get a booth at Skip. Okay. When is Skip? Next week. I said, what, what do you have any Ooh. booth? What booth assets, booth assets do you already possess? None. You know, like uh, banners or backdrops or whatever. Nope. You know, let's like put that together today. How hard can it be? Right. So we, it was going to be in Anaheim that year. And our good friend, Melanie Seward, Melanie Wing at the time, she was conference chair and she had, unbeknownst to me, uh, she had arranged one of my like uh, idolized NFL coaches to be the keynote speaker, the, the late, great Bill Walsh oh, wow. uh, was the, the keynote speaker there. So here I show up, I'm like, well, I'm traveling to the south, uh, southwest um, west coast and why not travel comfortably so I pack all my business attire in my suitcase and I show up at skip seven days into my illustrious <laughs> career of being a competitive intelligence professional and my luggage got lost so here I am yeah. first trip we show up <laughs> Eric and I were laughing about this the other day we show up and uh, you know I got nothing to wear except a polo shirt and a nice pair of khaki shorts. So we get the, the thing set up. I finally find my luggage. We go on, we have, you know, the very first actual Aurora trade show activity at Skip. And, you know, uh, like you, other than the virtual one that we kind of all missed this last fall, we haven't missed one since. So it's super fun. Mm -hmm. Yeah, you guys' presence at that conference has come such a long way too. You know, sponsoring the you know the rock and roll evening several, you know, several years running. Um, and, you know, probably the most impress impressive booth on the floor now so you you've obviously upped your your trade show game quite a bit in those years <laughs> well you know when i was ceo and it was hey what are we going to do tomorrow uh <laughs> versus boy let's plan ahead i mean if we actually buy a booth <laughs> that's designed and looks nice and you know has graphics and everything maybe we'll be more successful at it so um, definitely intelligence is a profession that's all about learning and I think that's the that's the thing that's typified at least all of our careers. And I, I'll speak for you here, August, is that as you learn more about uh, the field, uh, you realize how much more you have to learn, really. That's uh, something that I know we've talked about before, and, mm -hmm. and it's definitely something that uh, that typifies this work. Tell us about what you're up to these days uh, and, and lately. I know you've had uh, a few different career uh, advancements in the last few years and, and curious what your, uh, what your current uh, work is, is like. Sure. Um, so about two and a half years ago, I, I left my role at Ernst & Young, um, or what it's now known as EY, um, in the, the strategy group there, um, working with Tim Kindler and a lot of the other great competitive intelligence and strategy professionals there, um, left EY to follow an opportunity to kind of pick up and run with the ball with the competitive intelligence function um, at Dell Tech. Um, Dell Tech is very well known in the Washington, D.C. area because it is um, the ERP platform that almost every government contractor uses. So everybody in D.C., when I say I work for Dell Tech, knows exactly who I work for. And, you know, I get to hear about the experience of, you know, filling out a Dell Tech timesheet and that sort of thing. Um, Dell Tech also makes software, I should say, for um, architecture and engineering, um, marketing and advertising agencies, and another other um companies uh, or other industries in project focused organizations. 
Um, so one of the things I really appreciated about Dell Tech when I was um, seeking out opportunities was that focus. One of the things I've observed and learned over the years, including in my effort to create my own business um, around a decade ago, um, is that you really, really need that industry focus. You need to, you know, I mentioned niches when I was talking about podcasts, you need to choose your niche. And one of the things I liked about Dell Tech strategy is we know what our niche is and we are not interested in going outside of that niche. And we serve that niche very, very well. Um, so I came into this role I was only the second person ever to um, lead the competitive intelligence function here. And I was following in the footsteps actually of um, somebody I had worked for and kind of learned competitive intelligence under when I was at British Telecom more than 20 years ago, um, you know, picked up and ran with the ball, um, you know, formalized a, a lot of structure around win loss, particularly in capturing um, high quality data directly in our CRM platform and just making that part of the sales process as well. Um, so, uh, competitive intelligence in you know, the, the SaaS world is its own thing. You know, it, it's, 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 it's probably akin to, you know, being a, a CI professional in a pharmaceutical company where, you know, doing CI here is different than doing CI almost anywhere else. Um, and so one of the things that I'm always eager to do is find other people doing competitive intelligence in software as a service industries, um, particularly ones with whom I don't compete. So we can have some very frank conversations about you know sources and methods and those sorts of things and what it's like to do competitive intelligence in a SaaS organization. I know that uh, one of the trends that we've observed over the last few years is that um, specialization of competitive intelligence into different more mission oriented roles. And I think what you just described, which is really, you know, market share acquisition, um, you know, conversion rate optimization, uh, you know, the old school, we might call that a little more tactical, uh, mm -hmm. to use a, a, you know, a debatable term. Um, this podcast actually is called running into the fog, because that's kind of what we did last year with the pandemic is, we didn't really know what was going to happen next and, and kind of, you know, the jury is still out a little bit on, on what's going to happen next in terms of the recovery uh, from all of this disruption. But um, how does that strike you? What, do you think that's the future of where competitive intelligence is headed more broadly or is it more that sort of strategic imagination? You know, what are we going to do when we grow up kind of thing? Uh, or is there a natural tension between the two? I think it's probably more actually, I like your last point about the natural tension. Um, I've always, you know, kind of walked away from the idea of a strategic and tactical divide. Um, you know, for, for me, you know, and, and this might be, you know, I'm an ENTJ and, you know, on, on that, you know, end, the needle falls off. So I am the most holistic person, you know, big hand, small map all the time. So, you know, when, you know, sometimes in our profession, people get really wrapped around the axle of, you know, well, what's strategic versus tactical? Well, everything's strategic over a long enough time period. Um, so that, you know, so that's something to keep in mind that, yeah, even tactics become strategic if you're keeping at them over time. Um, I also didn't really separate out strategy and execution as much as others might. And, and I, you know, my sense is looking at some groups that, that take a purely strategic view or approach to how they do things, um, you know, that, that misses opportunities to really affect change inside of the organization. Um, I, I still like your point about tension though, Eric, because that, that does then open up a, a little bit of tension um, 
for a you know for somebody thinking in a very traditional competitive intelligence mindset they might look at that you know some of the things that that my team and I get involved in and think okay you're you know you're maybe too much on the internal change management side of things and sometimes I feel that for, honestly I feel that tension and frustration as well that okay you know we we identified the gap and now here we are inside of the business helping to close that gap um, and then you 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 know you get bogged down in that and you kind of start to miss well I want to go back and like look at the competition or look at the you know, do my steep analysis or, you know, look at the, the market trends that are, that are impacting our customers, industries, that sort of thing. Um, so I, I feel that tension as well. I feel like I'm a little bit all over the place on my answer to your question, Eric. Um, but that's, you know, that's my perspective is, is I take, take a very holistic view and I don't really separate out strategy from tactics, from execution. To me, they're all so interrelated that I kind of have to take them all on at the same time. Actually, just to jump in there, I, th I th Maybe it's a, a way to say it, you know, if you were a, if you're a, a solid tactician of intelligence, you can operate across the chasm of, of tactical and strategic. And to your point, August, with a long enough time horizon, everything becomes strategic that you might do as a tactician, right? Um, you know, look over your left shoulder. You're, you're essentially saying that you're an Intel Jedi, right? And, you know, I think that that, that begs a question that I have for you. If, you know, it's an age-old debate. If you're looking to go from, say, British Telecom to uh, EY, and there might have been a stop in between there that I'm missing, and then over to Dell Tech, you know, if you're a if you're a domain expert in telco, and you're looking to pivot to a totally new space of, say, consulting and professional services. What's your opinion about the ability, if you're a strong tactician, the ability to learn new domain topics versus if, say, you were a sales leader looking to pivot into a competitive intel role? You get what I'm driving at? You know, how, easy, how easy is it to uh, pivot domain versus uh, tactician-related skill sets? Um, I, it's very contextual based on the situation. And I mean, there was a time when I, I had a lock solid answer for that. And, and I always prioritize the, you know, the competitive intelligence expertise, you know, really quite honestly, over the industry expertise, my thinking and my rationale there was that a good competitive intelligence professional, the skills that he or she would need to have in order to do that job well, would lend them into coming up to speed on an industry very quickly. So for example, when, when I pivoted um, from telecommunications to professional services, very quickly I saw, you know, this is the strategic warp and woof of this new industry and began to see, okay, so you know, I was at EY, I was one of, one of the big four global accounting firms. Okay, these are the dimensions where all of those other big four are very much like us. And here are all the different ways that they're very different and could begin to see kind of like the future of the industry to where, you know, they, they might compete with one another less and less based on what, you know, decisions they might make, you know, about, you know, certain elements of their business and the service lines that they were in and that sort of thing. Um, so I've, I've traditionally really favored competitive, you know, the competitive intelligence expertise. Now I will say I met my match recently. I'll, I'll, I'll come clean and admit this because we have a product line um, that I endeavored to support inside of Dell Tech. And I realized very quickly, 
you need to have like 20 years of experience using and selling the software before you can say anything about the relative strength strengths or weaknesses of these competitors because it's it was just such a specialized community that I I I, I recognize that I met my match. And so, you know, then my request, you know, back to leadership is um, can I hire somebody who's been in this industry for 20 years and I will teach them competitive intelligence because I think that's easier than in, in this in this instance than um, bringing a competitive intelligence professional in and having them learn this particular segment of our industry. And there are probably other examples of that. I brought up pharmaceutical before, you know, the idea that, you know, we do CI here different than in other industries. And when you look at CI professionals from that industry, you know, they tend to have backgrounds in chemistry and bio, you know, you know, biological sciences and those sorts of things. So you look at somebody like Martha Mateo, who has her, I can't remember her PhD is in, is in chemistry or biology, but yep. the, the fact that you would have to go that deep in the science before you could do competitive intelligence. So sometimes it's different. Um, you know, some, sometimes you do have to, you have to favor the industry experience. Um, but overall, I still, I still put my weight behind hiring the competitive intelligence professional. And in most instances, they can learn your industry. So in this recent example, did your Dell tech leadership say, yeah, go ahead and hire somebody with that experience and teach. I keep asking. Not yet. (laughs) (laughs) Not yet. Okay. I keep asking. And it's, it's so funny to have conversations around that one because you know, I, I did make my my path at doing competitive intelligence for them. And I was just like, oh my gosh, everything, all these like comparisons and differentiations between our product and the competitor's product, it, it's so deep in the weeds. Hmm. And, it's, it, and it's serving a really specialized community of you know, professionals who, you know, I'm, I'm trying to be vague here so that there's not competitors out there that's like, oh, they're struggling yeah. with this thing. We're not struggling, we're not struggling. <laughs> <laughs> it's, it's actually a market we're really strong in but the the competitive the competitive differentiators are so deep in the weeds and i'm just left wondering like why would why would that make a difference and i'm i'm dealing with you know our, our sales and our product people who are all people who have been in that domain for decades and they're like what do you mean why, why wouldn't you know that and i'm like i don't even know how i'd go out and find this about the competition and so it's a matter of i have to have an expert to to do it and i will teach that expert good CI, but it's just, it's so specialized and it's, it's a really interesting product too. So it's not for lack of interest on my part. It's just, it's, it's that specialized. Yeah. Uh, cool. I know one of your other passions is around uh, how small business uses competitive intelligence to succeed. Can you yeah. tell us a little bit about that and sort of, uh, I think you might have a project underway there. Oh, thank you for allowing me the opportunity to, to plug my project. Yeah. yeah so I, I've actually, um, started a book. Um, I'm writing a book. Oh my gosh. And, and to which everybody's response is neither am I. Um, <laughs> I'm writing a book about um, small business and competitive intelligence. And a couple of things have, have motivated me there. Um, one is that, that I'm, you know, I, I keep an eye on the job postings that, that are coming out from, you know, Skip and Indeed and other sources. And, and I've observed that smaller organizations, really middle market companies now are standing up competitive intelligence functions and sometimes really quite professional um, functions. So for example, a software company like Dell Tech, at one point, a company of Dell Tech size would not have had a dedicated competitive intelligence team. 
So like what's going on in the world that, you know, Deltac and Blackbaud and Illyrium. And I'm just trying to think of, you know, the, you know, the, the new faces that we see speaking and presenting or attending at Skip. Um, and I know I'm, I'm kind of software heavy here on my list, but I'm seeing all these middle market companies showing up. So, you know, the, the broader business world is getting the religion of competitive intelligence right now. And so there, there are these larger middle market companies that are really understanding the value they can get from our profession. I think there's an opportunity for the profession to go much further into the, the smaller business segment as well. And there, there's some, there's, there's a lot of, to, to overuse a, a, a business phrase, there's a lot of low hanging fruit for entrepreneurs and small business owners to apply some very fundamental and foundational competitive intelligence to improve their business opportunities and to avoid risk. And I'm, I'm very excited to have the opportunity to, to speak to you know, the, you know, the small business owners who really are the, you know, the engines of, of the American economy, certainly, and, 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 you know, likely the global economy as well. And to, you know, hopefully impart some of that, um, but also engage with that audience and, you know, learn, you know, how competitive intelligence can be different or better in, in that world. So, you know, getting outside of what, you know, what can sometimes be a very insular professional community of competitive intelligence professionals. And quite honestly, there's a lot of narcissism, narcissism of minor differences in terms of, you know, well, is it, is it SWAT or is it toes or is it this or is it that? And, and it's, and it's kind of like, well, let's, let's really get blast past all of that and talk about what, what really, you know, small business owners and entrepreneurs can do on their own or with a limited amount of support and get a lot of value from, you know, 80, 20 rule you know, what's, what, what's the real value that we can deliver as a profession in that segment. Where's that passion come from? Do you have a a background, family members or otherwise that are small business entrepreneurs? Can you talk a little bit about what's driving the the passion to write the book? Yeah. So, I mean, you know, there are plenty of entrepreneurs sprinkled throughout my family and I've got, you know, lots of friends and associates. I've, I've always had kind of an entrepreneurial spirit myself, even though I've spent most of my career in larger organizations, there's a lot of entrepreneurship that happens. And, you know, one way or another, I've always, always been driving that. I did take my stab at starting my own company with, with a, a former colleague of mine. Um, we did all right. Um, <laughs> it's kind of funny. I'm just a quick aside, if you don't mind, if you don't mind. Um, so our, our, um, our, our company was dedicated to translating knowledge graphs or ontological design into database schema so that organizations could have these, you know, these very domain specific database models that an, you know, an industry expert could go in and create the ontological model or describe it to somebody like me who could build it for them. And then, you know, boom, out the other side of that comes, you know, a SQL or an Oracle data schema. And so your database looks like your industry. So once again, here I, here I go with my niches, right? Um, and this, this grew out of some work that, that um, this, this colleague and I had done at a small government contractor. Um, we'd done some work for some DOD and some Intel community agencies and helped them build Intel specific databases. And um, was was really interesting work. This is you know circa mid two thousands and was was pretty advanced at the time. Um, 
really excited by all that. But the one thing that I knew is I did not want to do government work. I did not want to be like buried in the accounting requirements, the project reporting requirements. And, you know, we're standing up this business and, and a friend of mine who um, himself was an entrepreneur and, and had his own small government contracting business. It's like, I talked to my, my, you know, I talked to my clients at DOD and they're really interested in your work. <laughs> and so I was like, oh no. And so like, we had to go into DOD and everything and talk to them. And um, as it, was, it was around that time that I moved over to EY. So I, I moved from a day job that kind of allowed me the time and the freedom to have that second project to a place where yeah the the work schedule did not allow for something like that so we had to shut that shut that business down but it was really interesting to you know to not want to do government work for various reasons and then to have the dod be very very interested in the work that we were doing but of course the world's a little different now than it was you know 11 months ago uh and i think small businesses have borne the brunt of a lot of the negative part of those changes Um, how do the how do little companies and even medium-sized companies need to recalibrate for what's happening right now? As we were talking yesterday uh, in our episode two recording uh, of of the podcast series, we we're talking a little bit about manufacturing and how manufacturing that normally goes out to trade shows and exhibitions to meet their market and do deals and demo their latest stuff don't really have that anymore. You know, it's just not part of their reality, and so. Uh, they're resorting to somewhat older school tactics. And in the, the example that we talked about yesterday, they pick you up the phone. Like and call. The phone? Like yeah, they got to actually call somebody? Call around, oh see gosh. if somebody wants to buy something. Uh, right. But uh, talk a little bit about that. How can, uh, how can intelligence professionals and analysts and you know, what we do be used to support that recalibration, particularly for SMEs? SMBs rather, excuse me. Yeah, and, and I think there's there's a lot of opportunity there. And that's, you know, when, when I think about some of the competitive intelligence or the intelligence skills, I, you know, I hope to impart in, in this book that I'm, that I'm not writing. Um, <laughs> you know, that, that's one, one of the things that I have in mind is how do you, as a business owner or as an entrepreneur account for risk? You know, and and there's there's all sorts of different kinds of risk, and, and you know we're we're living in, you know, this period of you know I, I don't think it qualifies as a black swan. I think it qualifies more as a gray rhino. Um, you know, the, the idea that you know the the a global pandemic is something that always you know at least for you know since early 2000s, since the first SARS pandemic, there you know there was kind of this idea that hey, this is something that could disrupt global business on on a really significant scale. Um, and I don't know if you, you don't necessarily have to see the, the scale of COVID or the duration of COVID to know that something really significant could happen. So, you know, I, I, I reject the notion that this was completely un, unpredictable. Um, you know, the fact that somebody might not know the day or the month that it happened does not mean that it was unpredictable. And it was kind of like the um, you know, criticisms that the CIA didn't see the fall of the Soviet Union. You know, that, you know, everybody completely saw like, you know, the vulnerability and, and what things could happen to make, you know, to make that fall into place. But that's, that's yet another ax to grind. Maybe we'll, we'll, we'll swing back to that one. Um, but helping, helping business owners understand the dynamics of risk and apply, you know, steep analysis and scenario analysis and some other methods to evaluate what are some of the things that could possibly happen, you know, related to global pandemics or, you um, 
you know, cyber, you know, major cyber intrusion events into infrastructure, you know, like, like power, electricity, or telecommunications, those sorts of things, um, major political upheavals, you know, those sorts of things. What, you know, what are some of the potential durations of, um, you know, significant business shutdowns that, you know, could influence the decisions about how we finance our business or, um, you know, how, how we might, you know, execute or implement some sort of contingency plans into our business, those sorts of things. So I think, you know, the, the COVID-19 pandemic offers up a lot of opportunities for, for those sorts of things. But I'm, I'm curious, like I keep talking and talking, um, what, what, are, what do you guys think about that? What are, what are some thoughts that, that you guys have had not conversations you're having with entrepreneurs all the time too? Well, one of the ideas that emerged in the last 11 months or so since this all hit, and by the way, today is February the 12th, uh, 2021, if you're wondering when we're recording this, um, it was almost exactly uh, 11 months ago that the lockdown kind of hit. And um, when that happened, I called my kids school and I said, you know, our kids won't be in tomorrow. Uh, In fact, uh, we'll see you when this is over. Uh, Because... Uh, the way pandemics work historically through history is they, they mutate. They usually mutate into something less deadly and more virulent uh, in order to uh, spread and you know, eventually become uh, epidemic rather than pandemic. Uh, and eventually uh, they, they, are, they are endemic. You know, it's the seasonal flu situation. And that's, that's inevitable with COVID-19. It's a matter of, um, you know, this thing hopefully not getting worse before it gets better. But knowing that, um, you know, as the, the groups that I was talking to, I was not a real popular guy uh, being an intelligence analyst at a, in a lot of the tribes where I congregate, particularly, club. for example, my church or, mm-hmm. you know, other places where they're like, when can we get back to normal? And I said, listen, guys, maybe a year or two, if we're lucky, you know, if we're really lucky and things go really well um, and a vaccination miracle happens and, you know, that we get widespread distribution of that and something else doesn't take advantage of this disruption. And we then have all these compound factors that turn this into a much bigger shitstorm than it already is, then maybe a year or two. uh, And that I think is deeply unsettling for people who don't constantly think about what might happen next. And that's, I think what intelligence analysts do. We're constantly thinking about what might happen next. So when something like this happens, it's like, eh, see you in a year or two. And everybody else is like, what? <laughs> are, you, are you crazy? A year or two. Uh, and you know, for us, it's less of a big deal because it's just reality. You know, our, our job is cope with reality and help others hopefully cope with the realities that we can foretell. And usually those realities are very entropic. Uh, So the the thing that I noticed in the last 11 months was the concept of under certainty. Now, most people in the intelligence world talk about uncertainty, VUCA, right? Uh, Uncertainty we've discovered is a void. It's a bottomless pit. Uh, where there is nothing in the uncertainty pit. And you just sort of get lost in the despair of this bottomless emptiness. And it's much more helpful to think about that axis as certainty rather than uncertainty. Because certainty is actually almost quantifiable. So one of the things that emerged, you mentioned the knowledge graph a little while ago. One of the things that emerged is this concept of an action graph. 
that there are three dimensions to an action graph. There's impact, there's imminence. So how big a deal will it be? And when's it gonna punch us in the mouth? And then the z-axis is really around certainty. And that z-axis, the reason it's important is because it drives the threshold of actionability. And that's, at the end of the day, that's what we do. You know, we help our clients to take action appropriate to the circumstances at hand to produce an optimal outcome. And so there's a threshold of under-certainty that when under-certainty meets the threshold of action, boom, that's when you move. So that's my observation of what the last 11 months has taught me about reality that I hadn't thought of until now. That's just a really add. great framework. Sorry, Derek, go ahead. You know, I, I was just going to add, you know, I, my background before I joined Aurora was in uh, investments and I would self-describe myself as a uh, calculated risk seeker, which I think is different than a calculated risk taker. You know, if, it, if something, if you take something that, that is different than seeking something, right? And why I'm so interested in your book that you're doing for, for entrepreneurs and small businesses is because, you know, frankly, in the intelligence realm, I think there's many underutilized um, techniques and applications like scenario planning, like wargaming, competitive simulation, like some of those different things. Everybody tends to revert to tools like SWAT or TOES or any, any number of other three or four letter little uh, cute acronyms, right? But at the end of the day, being able to simulate some behavior, whether it be our own or that of a competitor or a disruptor or a new innovator in our spaces, for small businesses, they have, I think, more opportunity to do something about it, take that action rather than going up X number of chains above them, sometimes all the way to the board for these large publicly held companies to make some type of decision or action to be taken for us to mm -hmm. seek for us to seek some risk in exchange for some qualified return that we believe we've come up with some calculation around. So, you know, that's, I'm, I'm totally aligned with you on the, the benefit of that for, for the SMB marketplace. Um, it will be different depending upon what vertical they operate in. I'm oh, sure. Yeah. And I'm guessing your, your book will touch on uh, those uh, subtle and not so subtle differences between verticals and industries utilizing mm -hmm. oh, yeah. Intel. Um, not dissimilar from the ways that pharma or tech might do it these days versus financial services, banking, or something a bit more conservative in their in their application of it. Um, you know, it's just it's just really interesting to see the the alignments you know, between uh, mega cap companies and the way they're doing it, and the way that the the micro caps you know might be doing it uh, on the, the low end of it. Yeah, absolutely agree. And, and one of the things that you talked about there, Derek, was, was the idea of, you know, simulating the competition. Um, you know, we've actually gained a lot of traction running war games um, in, inside of my organization. And, you know, I mean, nothing cuts through the bullshit like, uh, a, a good, you know, a really well-constructed war game. And, we, you know, we've got it down to, you know, something of a science now where, you know, whether it's a you know, a, a single move or a multi-move exercise, you know, we can simulate us versus a competition, two competitors versus one another. We can have multiple competitors come in and evaluate that. And, you know, you can apply all your frameworks, you know, all your 
business case rules, you know, all, all your you know, fin financial projections and all of that, um, but actually simulating the, you know, the competition or the experience or you know, what happens if this you know, ex exogenous factor you know, upends the industry or has a significant you know, um, influence on how the industry moves forward. And it just, it just cuts through everything and, and people's, you know, defensiveness just, you know, just, just disappears. And then on, on the, you know, on the backside of that, if you, if you do the good after action report and hot wash and you socialize those findings appropriately, you know, people are, are just geared towards action. And even in larger organizations that take a lot of time to make decisions or everything has to go up to the board, everybody's like, oh my gosh, we, we really got to do this. And, you know, they, they see the risk and they also, I like that risk seeker angle because they also see the like hey this is a thing we could we could you know we're not reacting we're actually you know the ones pushing the change in the market and if we do this then everybody you know is in a situation where they have to react to us and that sort of thing and so there's there's a lot of you know risk seeking that goes on and then risk taking ultimately that when that turns into action too nice so you uh is your podcast officially on hiatus right now august any chance <laughs> of it coming back sometime soon it's been on hiatus for a decade now. Um, I, I am, am, you know, I have this ambition of, of restarting the podcast as well, or, or, you know, maybe pivoting that kind of along with the book, um, you know, refocusing a competitive intelligence podcast or YouTube channel or something like that for small businesses and entrepreneurs as well. There just seems to be a lot of synergy there. Um, so it's, you know, it's something that's on the agenda. Um, I think, you know, some people that I know really well might know that for about a year, I was um, trying to be in the Mercyhurst's um, Masters of Applied Intelligence program, um, which I, I absolutely adored the program. Um, don't get me wrong about that. But the idea of um, working a full-time job, which is, you know, 40 hours is, is doesn't even begin to cut it, um, you know, working a full-time job, having, you know, a, a master's program like that at the same time. Um, just right there was, you know, ultimately proved to be very incompatible and, you know, was, was not a, not a schedule I could maintain or a focus that I could really give work life or academic life at the same time. I might like to come back to that at some point later, you know, quite honestly, if I'm, if I'm wealthy enough or if I, you know, am kept, <laughs> then, then, then somebody can, you know, pay for, you know, pay for my, my standard of living while, while I, pursue a career in academia, I would, I would love to do that. And the Mercyhurst program for anybody who's looking at a program in intelligence studies, I cannot recommend it. I cannot recommend it enough. Um, but it was just, you know, really incompatible. So now um, having unfortunately had to say, I'm, I'm walking away from that program, you know, now thinking again about projects like the book and, and I think a podcast or some sort of, some sort of, you know, digital element of you know reaching out to that same community of small business owners and entrepreneurs and 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 serving that mission um, that I am so passionate about you know really is it's it's time for me to do something there. That's exciting. Well, where can people find you, August, and and follow your many exploits uh, and ideas out in the world? Um, so the the best place to engage with me is probably on Twitter. Actually, I am eight of twelve eight o f one two on Twitter. That's, that's my Twitter handle. And, and I'm, I'm there a couple times a week, um, you know, with, with funny band name ideas or funny drag name ideas, those sorts of things. Sometimes with some competitive intelligence insights, sometimes sharing 
um, competitive intelligence opportunities that I've come across in my in my news trolling and that sort of thing. Um, if they want to find um, a little bit more long form content, um, I do blog every once in a while at augustjackson.net. Um, and but that's you know that's only from time to time. But that's another thing I got to get back on too. When is the book uh, any no, You're not going to put any lines in the sand as to when you might have this thing in the hands of an editor. Yeah, I'm not ready to do that yet. All right. Well, um, it's, we it's still, back. Yeah. before yeah, we well, go, definitely. before we go, I want to watch you guys geek out a little bit on uh, like Return of the Jedi and the Star Wars series. What, what do you think, uh, August is I'm only just kind of getting my feet wet in. I'm 46 and I'm my son, Benji, 14 is getting me into these movies. Um, you know, you got some interesting backdrops behind you. Uh, and I know Eric's a longtime Star Wars um, advocate. What, what do you guys uh, think is the best movie out there? Best three movies? Well, I think that's obvious. <laughs> Don't you? It's, yeah, yeah. It's the original. You go first. Trilogy. You say, you give us uh, okay. number three and I'll give us number two. How about Okay. No, I mean, three yeah. I'll, I'll, okay. Okay. So, third best movie, Return of the Jedi. Yep. Okay, and um, Rogue One as number two. Excuse me. Yeah. And let's oh, say it okay. Again. I, I completely. I, I'm I counting have to down. Change my answer now. Yeah, I'm counting no, down. I have to change my answer now. You're right. Um, so I don't think Return of the Jedi can be the third best. I think I think on the math you're doing, and you're right. Um, I think A New Hope has to be third best. Yeah, you're right too. Yep, you're yeah. right. So, so then Rogue One. New Hope. Rogue One. Empire. Yeah. Empire Strikes Back. Okay, <laughs> so we're gonna try to say it at the same time or not? Right, exactly. Yeah, the best one. The best one is Empire. Absolutely, no doubt. Um, so the original trilogy and Rogue One and Mandalorian are all absolute, just brilliance and perfection. Um, the Force Awakens is actually really good too. Not half bad. Yep. Yeah, um, and then and then the second trilogy for me, you know, the 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 um, the Last Jedi had a lot of potential. Um, it was it was taking the story in a completely different direction. I didn't really, you know, that, I had some issues with the execution, but I loved the direction that it was going in. Um, and then, I mean, for me, you know, um, the rise of Skywalker just kind of killed it. <laughs> Sorry. So and then, and, yeah, go ahead. The image of Luke Skywalker uh, in his advanced years drinking the milk of a walrus and then <laughs> just sort of fading away didn't get me super excited about um the last one that i can't remember what it's called because i didn't see it i'm and probably you didn't even see it yeah father. no probably yeah not. well i i mean one of the reasons i like the the second trilogy where it started from is this idea of you know um like freedom and independence and everything like that have to be constantly renewed. Mm. So the idea of, you know, the first order having kind of risen from the ashes of the empire and every, and, you know, everybody has to, you know, now there's a, there's a resistance that has to stand up to that, to that, you know, new, you know, emergent evil, that sort of thing. Um, that resonated with me that felt, you know, kind of like if you think about like the fall of Nazism in the forties and everything like that. And then, you know, other rises of fascism and authoritarianism around the world. It's like, oh, it's it's kind of like this 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 thing making this cultural image. You know, this cultural story making you aware of, you know, vigilance is the is the price of liberty. 
I can't remember the exact quote off the top of my head because it's late Friday afternoon, but like eternal vigilance is the price of liberty or the cost of liberty. And that really resonated with me. And then the last movie kind of turned it in like, oh, it was still Emperor Palpatine the whole time. Sorry. Oh, my God. Spoilers if you've not seen the third not, movie. If I haven't seen um, it by now, it doesn't matter. <laughs> yeah. So. Oh, sorry, I spoiled no it for you. Possible here. If it's my own fault if I haven't seen it at this point. So, because because then then it kind of ends it with like, oh, it's just this evil guy, and you just got to kill him, and everything's fine. Right. So yeah. you all see what I see what I did there. I knew I knew just enough about Star Wars to introduce the topic, but I have no ability to talk about any of this stuff. Um, <laughs> what I the last thing I'd love for you to share. It's not every day we get uh, somebody that's known us as long as you have. August uh, known us in the context of the brothers Johnson and um, you know, we are so humbled and honored to serve in places like the council of competitive intelligence fellows with you. Uh, it's a great honor for us. And you know, the number uh, numerous other few, several dozen uh, people that are in that uh, you know, great uh, hall of fame, if you will. Mm -hmm. um, do you have any funny Joe bro stories for <laughs> our audience that are, that are, let's say uh, PG 17 or, or better that uh, might even be slightly embarrassing. Mm, do I ever? Um, well, of, of course, I, I've already shared the one. You guys, it's it's more embarrassing for me than it is for you. You guys really <laughs> saved my life on that one SLA conference in Philadelphia. Man, um, I was really uh, sleepy that night. Um, you know, and funny story, funny Joe bro stories. Um, you know, one of the, um, skip earlier skip conferences that we attended together was the, I think it was the 2008 conference in San Diego. And Derek, I don't think I've ever seen anybody get that sleepy that fast as you got at, um, at the, I think the last night, um, at, at that conference, that was really something. Right. Yeah. Oh, it's, it's funny how exhausting a skip week can be. And then oh, man. layer on layer on top of it being asked, uh, you know, you and I were both asked at that tail end of that conference to, to serve as chairs of the, the next year's conference, the 09 conference is going to be in your home city of Chicago. Yeah. Right. Home city. Yeah. So, yeah. You know, yeah. I mean, people get sleepy quickly sometimes. Sleepy, sleepy at a, at a competitive <laughs> intelligence conference. And of course, one of the last really fun competitive intelligence nights out, I think probably any of us had the chance to have um, was when the um, the Council of CI Fellows were in my new home city of um, Washington, D.C. And we went to um, Freddy's in Crystal City, which is um, a, an LGBT oriented bar that has a karaoke bar every, you know, has a karaoke night pretty much every night of the week. And um, you know, we got, you know, we got into some David Allen Coe, we got into some Queen, um, we got into, I'm trying to think of some other, probably some Bon Jovi, there's definitely some Bon Jovi in there. Um, and we closed the place. I, I remember shutting the place down. Yeah, yeah, I remember that. That would have yeah. been October of 2019, if I have my rough Sounds time. Sounds about right. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, and just so much fun, just so much fun. Like you, me, Elise, um, and we had a couple of other people that I don't know if they closed it down with us. Um, but you know, we, we had a good, we had a really good bunch there. Um, and you know, I, I think back to that because I, I miss that sort of interaction so much, you know, you, you, you're leaving that night and thinking like, Oh, well, you know, if I don't see you before I'll see you at skip. And then, 
you know, 2020 right. happened and, you know, looking forward to, you know, whatever 2021, the, you know, the second half of 2021 or, or, you know, if it needs to be 2022, we can all, you know, go and, you know, sing some songs and get a little sleepy again. Yeah. Right. Well, here's to that. That's a great way to end is, uh, is the forecast of uh, seeing each other again in person and, uh, and raising a, a tipple and uh, to each other's <laughs> health and having a good time. So uh, with that, August, thanks so much for being here and, uh, and helping us get this podcast started. Uh, this will probably get uh, posted out there sometime next month, March, probably 2021. We'll give you a heads up awesome. on, on when and uh, Derek, Great job as always. Uh, always a privilege to uh, you know have these conversations with my baby brother. It's fun to run into the fog together. It's way more fun to do it together than to go about it alone, yeah. right? Right. Yeah, and absolutely. All right, August. Thanks again, thanks, Jens. Thanks again, no, August. Thank you. Thanks, Jens. All right, bye, guys. Bye.